This episode contains discussion of prison, violence, death, details of suicide, self-harm, and abuse. Please be mindful when you choose to listen. We will also be talking about self-inflicted deaths, which is the language we use at Inquest around what's more commonly called suicide. You're listening to Unlawful Killing, Death, Resistance and the Fight for Justice. A podcast by Inquest, the only charity fighting alongside families bereaved by deaths involving the state, including police, prison and mental health services. I'm Lee Lawrence, advocate and son of Cherry Gross, who was shot by the Metropolitan Police, which sparked the 1985 Brixton uprisings. And I'm Lucy Brisbane from Inquest. In this series, we're diving into our 40-year history of campaigning. We'll be doing this through conversations with those at the centre of these stories. Episode 3, Prisons, Part 1. It was the way they got treated, you you know, they didn't help him or nothing at Glen Park. It was absolutely shocking, shocking, shocking treatment that place was. It's not there anymore, obviously, thank God, but it was was shocking. I went to visit it after um, Jake died. They let me go and come up and have a look. Oh, I felt sick. It was horrible. We spent the last two episodes looking at policing and its fatal consequences. From Blair Peach to my mum, Cherry Gross, and more recently, Chris Cabber, we looked at what links these deaths together and how families are left fighting for justice. But now we want to shift our focus to what lies just a step beyond policing, prisons. And look at why so many people are dying in prison, why so few people are talking about it, and the communities and families that these deaths tear apart. In this episode, we're going to look at the children and young people who have died in prisons in the past and how family-led campaigns have led to vital changes which have saved lives. People are often surprised to hear that the UK has the largest prison population in Western Europe. Every year, the prison system disappears thousands of people, tearing apart their lives, communities and families. Is that because we have more bad people and more crime than the rest of Western Europe? No. It's shocking, but not surprising. And it's a business. Prison's a business. I don't feel there's enough focus on how do we prevent crime and bring down crime and stop people repeating crime. It's about, you know, how can we just give people harsher and tougher sentences for crime? And all we're doing is sort of perpetuating the problem. Yeah, and I think it's not really something that gets talked about much unless you're talking about, you know, people escaping from prison or the government wanting to build more prisons, overcrowding, but we're not really talking about who's actually being sent to prison, why they're being sent to prison, and the harms that prisons themselves and the criminal justice system itself are perpetuating on the people who end up in them. 
there's so much scaremongering and there's so many myths. Most people in prison are people who have long been failed by our social systems. They've grown up in care. Maybe they face mental ill health, addiction, homelessness. Very often the people in prisons are themselves victims of harm and of violence. And that violence is continued by the prison system. I hear that. And there's a part of me that sympathises with that. And on the other hand, I can understand if somebody has committed a crime, and especially a horrific crime against you in your mind, what you want and what you feel you deserve is for that person to go to prison and pay for what they've done to you in time. But I feel people are not being exposed to any other options around what does justice look like. But I think if people were introduced to different ideas around what justice looks like, then people may be more open to exploring different options or wanting different things in regards to justice or in regards to some type of accountability. And I think there's this inherent tension in our work, right? Because we work with families who themselves are victims of injustices and really of crimes in the system as it is. Your loved one being killed, say in police custody, shot by the police, whatever it is, that is a crime. And at the moment, there's a disparity and an unfairness where police officers or prison officers or you know institutions are above the law. And very often we're calling for more accountability for people who have been part of those deaths. And families are calling for that accountability at a criminal level. And we support that. But at the same time, we see that the criminal justice system isn't preventing harm and doesn't actually solve the problems that we hope as a society that it does. So we have to also at the same time hold this truth about wanting accountability, which is valid, but also holding the truth that these systems aren't necessarily the answer to create the change that we want. So we have to, in the the short term, say these police officers and institutions can't be above the law. That's not fair. But also that the law itself is failing us and it's broken. And we need to think more imaginatively about how we can prevent harm in our society in the everyday and in the more extreme examples. So Lucy, and just in response to what you just said, I think what most families who have been subjected to these injustices by the state or by institutions are fighting for is around the unfairness that if a crime is committed by a person, a normal person like me and you, and especially if you come from a deprived background, then the likelihood is that you'd be punished and go to prison where if someone commits the same crime within these systems, then they seem to not face the same level of punishment or any at all. So therefore, most families are fighting and challenging that unfairness and that unjust way of dealing with people differently just based upon where you sit rather than what you do. Yeah, and I think what's important to remember is that some people are dragged into this system when they're just children. Right now, there are hundreds of children in prisons in England and Wales. The age of criminal responsibility or the youngest age that you can be arrested or charged is just 10. Wow. I mean, it just goes to show how how vulnerable young people can just end up in the system and how you can criminalise someone who's just as young as 10. 
Yeah, and when you're talking about children, it really helps you realize how much this is about systems and this is about people who are being failed. Children are not just born bad. The systems are not supporting them to get to where they need to be and they're being punished from such a young age. And most people don't really know what's going on in our prisons or what they even look like. And at the sharpest end of all this, you have children dying in our prisons. So we never really hear about the people who end up in prison, like who they really are. We just see them as prisoners. And as part of our oral history project, we spoke to Marianne Walters, whose son Jake Foxhall died in a Young Offenders Institute in Leicestershire in 2015. Marianne told us what it's like having a son in prison. He'd never been in prison before, you know, and, and Jake's not, Jake was never a tough person. He was, an, he always come across as tough, but he wasn't, he would, he was a very frightened little boy in that. I was hopeless and helpless because I didn't think anybody would be able to help me out in that, you know, you just, it's funny because the prison service do not help out people that first timers, they just, okay, he's in prison and that's it, he's, he's done a, done a crime, just get on with it, but. They don't help families out, you know, and they, sh- they should, especially if it's a first time mum, you know, that your, that child's got something wrong with him. It scared me. It really did. I just, I don't think I really slept, actually, because of when he was in prison at all. I think I just up and down all night. It was very, very unsettling time for me. It was horrible. I used to go and try and see him twice a week as well in prison. I just, nah, I didn't like it at all. I was scared constantly. I think I went grey. The whole appearance of my face just changed from being, like, no wrinkles to having wrinkles what I've got it's just it's weird how much how much stress can cause but that's what he did I was really stressed totally listening to that makes you realize how much others are affected by people being in prison and those are the stories that we don't hear you know mum and mum having to travel to go to see her son in prison in the hostile environment that that is you know I know that People get searched and frisked down and, you know, there's dogs and it's a really intimidating environment to be in. And sometimes the person could be in prison, you know, quite far away. It could be hours and hours and miles and miles away. And that person has to travel, has to send that person money. And all that time you hear in her voice the concern and the fear that she has of her son being in that environment day in and day out and the stress that probably causes as well. Yeah, and the fear because we know that prisons are bleak places. This is a 19-year-old who's been taken away from his mum. He's been locked up in his cell. You know, people are locked up for up to 23 hours a day, maybe only getting out for meals, if that. There's violence, there's bullying, including from staff, and access to both mental and physical health care is so poor. And that's why it's no surprising self-harm and suicide rates are so high in prison in our country. And just going back to Jake, you know, if I think about when I was a teenager, I cannot imagine how I would have felt alone and just taken away from my family. Notorious Glen Parva. And he didn't get no help or nothing up there at all. They didn't get in touch with me. I couldn't go and see him because it was too far, they wouldn't help me go and see him. Um, it was just phone calls and that, and he called out to him a few times that like, I'm getting bullied, and you know, and they said, well, whatever, and then depression, just basically, they just, they just palmed it off. 
you know they just palmed it off and that and then obviously I got a phone call from, I got a phone my last phone call from Jake was the day that he'd done it I didn't realize at the time that that was actually a goodbye message because he spoke to his brother as well and then obviously next time I knew I got a phone call from the governor saying that Jake was in hospital on life support machine because he hung himself so it was the way they got tripped and you you know, they didn't help him or nothing at Glen Park. It was absolutely shocking, shocking, shocking treatment that place was. It's not there anymore, obviously, thank God, but it was it was shocking. I went to visit it after um, Jake died. They let me go and come up and have a look. Oh, I felt sick. It was horrible. It was just like a medieval prison staff were just like, Pff. But we had, when Jake was in hospital, we had one, one prison guard that was really nice. Even though, it's funny as well, but they had handcuffs. I'm thinking, why the hell have you got handcuffs on my son? He can't move. He's unconscious. He's got a tube down his throat and a handcuff in him. It's protocol. I'm like, what? Protocol because the fact that you've got my son's... Oh. But it was just driving poorly. Every time I see him and see him with handcuffs on his bed, it's horrible. It was just vile. You know, in our work, we hear like shocking, shocking stories all the time. But I just think when, when you hear a mum talking about her son dying... The prison staff keeping him in handcuffs. It's just, it just speaks so much to just how dehumanized people are when they're in prison and how much they've lost sight of people having families and people who love them and also just being people who need help and support. It still feels shocking to me every day, even though I know this is what's happening. And I've still got that image in my mind of this person, this boy, we have to say a boy because he was a teenager, 19, handcuffed to the bed while he's on the life support machine. And how, as you say, dehumanizing that is. And how this person is not seen as a person, they're just seen as a prisoner who is a criminal and doesn't deserve to be treated like a human being. And also in Marianne's voice, you know, you can hear how much she cares about him and how much she loves him. And yet we live in this society where he was taken away from his family who care about him and can help him and put in this situation that clearly actively harmed him as a 19 year old. Like, what is the value in that? We live in a society where this whole group of people is not only physically removed to prisons, but actually actively harmed by these systems. And very often it's the most marginalized people who end up in prison, people with mental health issues like Jake, or people who are living in poverty, people who are racialized, or are survivors of abuse. And you know, we've got some facts here. Nearly a third of young people in prison have special educational needs or disabilities compared to just 15% of children nationally. In this country, Less than 1% of all children are in care, but looked after children make up 33% of boys and 61% of girls in custody. And more than half of young prisoners have been permanently excluded from school. It's something that campaigners call the school to prison pipeline. We're creating this system where the people who need the most help are the people who are ending up being punished. And it's sad that what these people really need is support, but they're being punished and further damaged you know what does that environment look like the way you're a force to take your own life you know it says a lot about the environment that you're in it just feels very unfair especially for young people to 
be put in an environment like that. And the children that we're talking about and the young people that we're talking at, more than half of those children are from racialized communities. We know what's happening in this country. That is not a coincidence. And it's not, and I can say as a young person growing up in Britain, I've been subjected to, you know, the stereotypes and constantly being stopped and searched and arrested. And although I haven't got a criminal record, I couldn't tell you how many times I've been arrested and how many times I've been put into a cell. And so just the whole unfairness, right? That just because of what you look like and where you happen to live and your social standing, where people should be more empathetic towards you, you're being treated more harshly as a result of that. And to me, I see how people get hardened how people could go in very vulnerable into those situations and then end up hardening up and come out and reoffending because every day that's just been projected upon you. You're not seeing the possibilities of what you can be. You're just seeing what people are projecting onto you in terms of being a criminal, in terms of being somebody who can't do any better than what you're doing now. So where does somebody go with that type of mindset? Yeah, and it's survival. And I think, you know, we've been talking about children in prison, but every year there's also over 100,000 children who have a parent in prison. Prison affects more than the people who are just there. It's their families as well. And I guess that's where Inquest comes in. It was a Victorian prison. They just didn't care, basically. Because there was quite a lot of children, young men, that died in that prison, and most of them died of hanging as well, which I thought was absolutely shocking. No, there was no humanity in there, no thought, no care, no personality. It was just nothing, just absolutely nothing. And obviously, with Inquest, they brought all that to light as well. You know, They said to me that Glen Parva was the worst prison for, for children to, to, to die, because it, I think it was about... I think it was every six months or every nine months you'd, they'd find, of course, you know, the hanging and that. And just before the prison shut down, I learned that another boy had, had hung himself as well in, in, in that same prison. I'm just glad it's not there anymore. I really am. It's just, it was horrendous. It was horrific. That's the death prison. That's what we call it, the death prison. And what Marianne is talking about there is how Glen Parva was actually shut down in 2017. But that was only off the back of years of campaigning from families who came together to really show what was happening there. And for me, you know, it's amazing when you hear these stories, how these loved ones who have been harmed and damaged and traumatized at the hands of the system, how they managed to muster up the strength, not even just to fight for their loved ones, but to fight for others who are in that same position and for people who could have ended up in that position in the future. So it always warms my heart to hear how people find a space in their heart to fight for not only their loved ones, but for others as well. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where Inquest as a charity comes in because we try to connect the dots and bring all those families together to bring more strength and apply pressure to the government, make them listen to families and create the change that is needed. And Inquest did some of this work with a review called the Harris Review in 2015, which looked at the deaths of children and young people in prison. And Lord Harris, who led the review, 
said every single death of a young person in prison is a failure by the state. One of the cases that sparked the Harris Review was the death of Joseph Scholes in Stoke Heath Prison. He was just 16 years old. And his mum, Yvonne Bailey, campaigned tirelessly for change, united with other mothers whose children took their own lives in prison following abuse, bullying and neglect. And Lee, Yvonne's photograph was part of the Souls Inquest exhibition, which you were also a part of. That's correct. You know, the Souls Inquest exhibition itself was seeing a combination of all these different representations of people whose lives were lost at the hands of the institutions was powerful within itself. Yeah, and Yvonne's picture that she worked on with her family was the number 16 made up with all these toys, all Joseph's toys, a real reminder of the fact that although he was in prison and he took his own life, he was just a child and he still had these toys and he was so loved. And that's what she really wanted to highlight, that he was a child. I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, following the campaigning by Yvonne alongside those other mothers, no child that is no under 18 year old has died a self-inflicted death in prison in 11 years. If you compare that to the early 2000s, when there were two or three self-inflicted deaths of children in prison every year, that is progress. And the latest data shows that the population of children in prison is at its lowest level for 10 years. That is not to say that there are no problems in child prisons for the hundreds of children that are still there. There absolutely are. There is so much further to go and actually Inquest believes no child should be in prison. But we have to mark the progress, huge progress that's been made and the lives that have been saved. And we have to recognize the efforts of the families that made this happen. And remember, they are loved ones who died preventable deaths, but now leave a legacy that continues to protect other people. Absolutely. The power of protest and campaigns. And that's child prisons, right? So that's just under 18 year olds. The minute you turn 18, the minute you're an adult in prison, it's a different story. And actually the opposite of that progress is what's happening in adult prisons and particularly in men's prisons. The populations are increasing to the highest levels we've ever seen. They're continuing to go up and up. Public policy, both Tories and Labour, want to be tougher on crime. But that isn't working. And there's a real lack of political will, or it's just like an unpopular opinion to try and change that. And it just goes to show that, you know, prisons do not work in terms of reform. There's more reoffending. And it's almost like when we look at stop and search, when there's violence, they see it as we need to put in more stop and search and it doesn't actually prevent or stop the problem. It just creates another problem. Yeah, it's a cycle of harm. And that cycle doesn't end when a person's released from prison. Prison affects your education, your job prospects, housing, everything. It's hard to believe that we're still pumping so much money into a system that's so broken. I swear I've heard somewhere before that it's more expensive to send a child to prison than what it is to send them to Eton. Yeah, exactly. That It says it all. So it actually costs between £76,000 and £160,000 per year to imprison a young person. Wow. That's all I can say, right? And how do we as a society think we're getting value for money? 
yeah, how can we justify that? Imagine what else you could put all that money into if you just paid for someone's house for a year. Even that, it's so simple if you just change the way we're looking at our public policy. Just imagine if we was to reinvest that money into those children's futures to prevent them from getting into crime in the first place. Yeah, that is exactly the point that campaigners are trying to make about system change. Campaigners like Jake's mum, Marianne. And it just goes to show, listening to Marianne and Jake's story, what can happen when we come together for change. And I really do commend them for doing that. And just to think, before their campaigning, there was at least two young people dying in prison a year. So just think about all those lives that they've saved. And that's the power of campaigning. And that's why it's so important that people listening to this podcast support these types of campaigns for change. That is the perfect note to end on, Lee. So to finish, we're going to hear from Marianne about who Jake was and what he meant to her. He was a little sweetheart. He had ADHD. Okay, and he, he had mental health problems as well. He was born in 5th of December 1995. He was six pounds two. He was a little tiny thing. And then he decided to grow up and be six at four and a half. He, he was like me. He liked physics. He liked looking at the stars. We used to sit out on, you know, in, in the summer and watch the stars and that. And he liked going out with his friends. He liked cars. And he was like me, he was so caring that his friends used to come to him to talk to. They used to talk to him, but no one was there for him, for him to talk. He used to hide hide behind his feelings now. He's just, you know, even though he's this big, tall boy, he's like, Ugh. but he was this introvert and he, he was such a loving, caring boy. He loved his brother to pieces, even though they fought like cat and dog. So there's only 14 months between them. But yeah, he 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 loved Fast and the Furious. He liked horror films, even though he had nightmares at night, which was quite funny. <laughs> he used to come out screaming in his bedroom. Ah! <laughs> he, he was yeah. He, he was he was just he, he was a gentle giant. He was he wouldn't do anybody any wrong. My baby, he'll always be my baby. He's my he's my Peter Pan, the boy that never grew up. In the next episode, we'll be speaking to Dita Saliuka about her campaign for justice after her brother Liridan died in Belmarsh Prison. Because it doesn't matter how much campaigning I do and what I do, he's not coming back. And that's what I try to point out when I do all of these things. I want to ensure that, you know, somebody else doesn't lose their lives the way Liridan did and that another family isn't destroyed like ours, um, you know, because it keeps happening. We know that this is a really difficult episode. If you've been affected by any of the themes that have come up, please go to the links in the episode notes. If you think other people would like Unlawful Killing, then please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings and feedback really help others discover the show. If you have a story to share, get in touch via communications at inquest.org.uk or on social media. 
We'd also like to pay tribute to the thousands of bereaved families who have worked alongside Inquest. Thank you to each and every one of you who have created powerful legacies for your loved ones and contributed to important changes which protect all of us. Unlawful Killing is made in partnership with Inquest and Aunt Nell, presented by me, Lucy Brisbane, and Lee Lawrence, produced by Leila Hagman and Naomi Oppenheim. Consultant producers Tash Walker and Adam Smith. The music in this podcast is by Dave Okumu. This podcast is part funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. We're grateful that this podcast series is supported by Hodge, Jones & Allen, a key law firm in the fight for what's right. Their lawyers help people right wrongs, fight injustice and defend people's rights. Inquest have worked with Hodge, Jones & Allen on countless cases from the Marchioness disaster of 1989 to the ongoing Essex Mental Health Inquiry. Thanks also to the students from the Centre for Social Justice Research at the University of Westminster who helped with the research for the podcast. We would also like to thank Marianne Walters and Anna Susianta for participating in our oral history project. 